don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, architecture and revolutionary movements in Russia and contemporary Europe with Nicolas Patsopoulos. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Nicolas Patsopoulos. Uh, he's um, an architect in New York and uh, a Greek uh, political activist. Uh, hello Nicolas. Hi. Hi. Uh, so today we're going to talk about how architecture uh, usually historically evolves um, with uh, uh, important political shift uh, in history, but also also more recently in, uh, in with the current uh, European situation. How how did architecture plays a role uh, in this, and how does it evolves in its uh, in its uh, very essence? Um, but maybe to start with, uh, could could you to start with this topic, could uh, Nicolas, could you tell us um, a little bit what's your relationship to this topic and how did you come about with this research? So the way that um, I think we should try to deal with this topic is pretty much talking about the historical uh, side of it, and the way that I think these things get signified today is that. It's the same way that the Soviet Union um, was completely transformed in the beginning of the 1920s. Um, is to my eyes the same way, the same uh, force of transformation that are happening today in Europe. I think the way you see it is the way that, as in Soviet uh, Russia in the beginning of the 1920s, a whole society got completely transformed and its architecture with it. Talking about the utopian socialist. Uh, architecture uh, of the beginning of the 1920s, just before uh, the Great Terror. Uh, the same way today, I think architecture has a big role to play in the social transformations that are happening in Europe uh, and we're witnessing today. Specifically, we're going to talk about Greece, since this is my home country, and right now it seems to be in the forefront of radicalization, um, in it, not only in society, but it's also into social structure. And and the way that people are pretty much foreseeing their future. So starting with, uh, with the historical essence of all this, uh, about 10 years ago, I started a pretty big research into um, utopian socialist architecture. Um, and somebody has to be very clear to explain that utopian socialist architecture has nothing to do with Soviet realism. That's a whole uh, genre of architecture and architecture thinkers that comes from the 1920s until the 1930s. Uh, roughly until 1935, and it's um, a new generation of thinkers that starts from the OSA, um, the architectural, uh, pretty much, schools in the Soviet Union that were created uh, to create a new type of um, Soviet architecture and create a socialist city. Now, uh, what I want to single out in this, there's a lot of uh, more uh, informed and more educated scholars that can talk about this. My interest mainly consists of one very specific person in this called uh, Mikhail Lohidovich, which was the leading figure um, in a series of uh, competition and exhibitions. And his main uh, part of work was uh, the idea of disurbanism. He was a person that wasn't even a trained architect. Uh, he was a part of the bureaucratic structure of, um, of, the, of, of the new founded regime. 
but he came up with an idea that he really believed into and he really fought for um, from from its essence from the 1920s until his um, his death in 1937. But what what really interests me as a person is the fact that somebody stood up with an idea that was revolutionary at the time. To my to my eyes, it's still revolutionary today, and pretty much confronted a whole structure, a whole society uh, that was in transformation mode even at that point went completely against it and lost his life in the pro- in the um, in the proceedings but really fought for this uh, ideal and i think that that ideal in in our work is something that us on our, as architects are really missing today since we're only regarding architecture the majority of us as just a profession when it really should be more of a social transfer uh, transfer transformer um, so, talking about um, uh, Mikhail Hirovich, I want to talk about the way that this single person um, tr- tried to transform the whole idea of the way that we witness the city. And the idea of this urbanism was that pretty much, since we were moving, uh, we we're moving in a new stage in uh, in human settlements, we would no longer need the cities. The cities would be would be dispersed. And with this completely radical idea and notion, he would, we would be able to connect the city and the uh, and the country. So, well, I'm 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 really not a uh, an expert or even uh, knowing much about about uh, Soviet architecture. But what what I what appears to me as a as a problem that that is uh, that goes way beyond uh, the Soviet uh, example is how does uh, an architecture like let's say a socialist architecture uh, does not come from anymore some um, as a, as a marginalized idea, but as a, as more of a government pro- governmental program, and therefore how does that affect uh, the very function of architecture when it's it's not anymore coming from uh, minoritarian uh, processes, but rather state state a um, state state addicted uh, 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 process as I, I suppose it's it's as much a prob- a political problem uh, I mean with the policies than in in the specific case of architecture isn't it right I mean when an architecture when an architectural idea even a radical one is no longer marginalized and it becomes the norm then it loses its grip into being able to transform and shift because one of the main issues of you know systems of power are the fact that are not they're not able to shift because once they're established, that's why they're called establishments, they're no longer able to warp around, you know, the new ideas and the new generations that are coming against them. So that's the same thing that pretty much happened uh, in this example. And this, in a way, is a good connection to what's going on in the architectural profession right now in Europe, where right now all the, ar- all the architectural uh, profession all the architectural profession does is pretty much serve, you know, the idea of uh, the market civilization and giving us nothing new, nothing radical, um, nothing really experimental to dream about or nothing new to, to fold in. But what it does, it pretty much serves the, the capital economy, the capitalist, the capitalist economy, and has nothing new to, to give us. And that's, exa- exam- that's exactly where um, the new type of marginalization, if you want, comes in, where in countries like Greece, like Spain, uh, like Italy, where 
the capitalist economy is no longer able to provide um, the necessary capital for architecture to grow as it's used to, you know, as it's as it was established to do so. Architects now find themselves in a very weird situation where they can no, they can no longer function as established architects, and they need to rediscover a way to become radicalized, to understand and to come into contact with the social um, meaning of uh, their profession. Examples of that right now, especially in Greece, is that architects are more and more in the forefront of uh, occupying like lots and building like temporary. Uh, spaces that create uh, more like a social condenser, if we want to use a 1920s um, uh, terminology. Ter- terminology. And um, and they're occupying like empty buildings, using their expertise to pretty much enforce, another force to um, infiltrate and give more power to, you know, to the, to the people's movements. Um, even in examples as in, in Turkey and even in the Arab Spring, where architects were actually used as designers of most of the, um, of the barricades and everything else that, that, that was happening that had to do with structures. That's the same thing that's happening in Greece in, in, in a very big part of it. Like the architectural school in Greece right now is one of the forefront um, for the student movement in Greece right now. So it's, for me, although the situation might be very dire, uh, it's also very, very, um, very optimistic because it gives us a chance to rethink the way that we uh, address the architectural occupation, um, the architectural profession, not only as a, produ- a producer of capital, but as a producer of new types of, new types of social form. And that's something that's going to only happen in conditions like the ones we're living right now in, in mainly in Europe. Um, that are as close as they can be with, in my eyes, uh, with what was happening in the Soviet Union in the beginning of the 20s. Because nobody really knows where the ball is going to stop. Nobody really knows when the whole lid is going to blow off. But what's going on right now is that new people are becoming radicalized. New people are are starting to join um, in the idea of learning through the streets. And if there, there's nothing more dangerous than an architect understanding his powers in the streets than you know just sitting in his room in his computer and just trying to draw a cat around mm-hmm. so for me that's a basic change that uh, the generate this generation has to offer us and i think is a lesson that has to be learned by young and old architects understanding that we shouldn't be the cat monkeys that we are today but our profession has much more of a social consequence um, and pretty much we are obliged to follow into that and even here in, in the United States where most of us, including myself, pretty much do nothing else than be part of that machine that creates capital, we have to understand we're more responsible than you know, just being the regular cut monkey and we have to start you know, wrench, you know, throwing wrenches in that, in that machine. I see. Well, I'm, I'm glad that earlier you talked about the architect's expert, expertise in the, within their context um, of, of the social movement we're talking about because it seems to me that the, the architect's expertise is actually very much involved within a scheme that has way more to do with uh, the way uh, uh, politicians are thinking of uh, the organization of a nation rather than, than something coming actually from the street. So I suppose the first person who has something to learn from the street if if uh, he or she is interested in, in, uh, in participating is the architect uh, himself or herself. 
because an architect was not really thinking about about the political consequences of of his or her act, acts are as as all chances to be way more part of the problems than the what if we if we may say the word solution even though it's it's obviously not exactly uh, we should not think of solutions we should think of, of uh, uh, acts of tr- struggle I suppose I totally totally agree with that and the thing is that most architectural schools and the way that the architectural education actually trains us today it does not help us help us understand that the way that the architect has to think is mostly you know the social aspect of uh, of our profession but what they do you know they talk about um, the struggle of being more efficient while what they should be doing and i think that's something that's becoming more and more eminent today from you know from from our times is they should be understanding how to return the architecture to the people it's not about mansions anymore it's about the way that we deal with architecture as an establishment, architecture as um, as a way of creating capital, and right now, according again according to to my eyes and what I'm witnessing, you know, and what I'm seeing in most of South Europe, is that architects have a lot to learn by taking the streets, and have a lot more to learn by being integral part of these social transformations that are happening in um, in these uh, societies. So an architect has to redefine his relationship not only with the built environment but with the people around him and with the society around the, his built environment. And that's something very important that an architecture school not only doesn't teach you today but it will actually try to convince you that it's completely irrelevant for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so if we accept their predicate that an architect has more to unlearn than to teach, where, where is this expertise that, that could be used within a, a social struggle? I think, I think that the, the clue here is the word unlearn. And I probably want to you know, pretty much stick in the idea of uh, Ivan Illich, who was talking about the, the schooling of society. And I think that the architect, as a, as a person in charge, if you want, of the built environment, um, wants to be part of the social transformation of, this, of the um, public space, of the way that the, even the private space gets diffused into the, into the public space. It needs to be the person that understands and in a way relinquishes What's happening today where the private space completely overhauls, you know, the private space, the public space. So we need to be the ones that are in the forefront of this disillusion, dissolution, disillusion. Mm-hmm. And the same way that uh, Ivan Illich had thought about, you know, the destruction of schools as the beginning of the the schooling of society and that was the only way that society actually could become to could start to become efficient the same way the disillusion of the way that we're building our built structures today is the first step for us to redefine our profession so in a few words we need to stop thinking architecture as um we need to stop stop thinking as the architect the architect as the, the god of the built environment, and we need to start regarding him as a piece of the social structure that's going to redefine the built environment. So it's only a piece of the machine. It's not the, the main instigator.
if you want. Mm-hmm. Which, well, what you're saying makes me wonder if there there could be a an architecture of unschooling or de-schooling, <laughs> because the when we say the school, that's kind of one of the main typology of architecture as we think. Mm-hmm. So, what what would be the architecture of the de-school? Is it is it even possible, or is architecture always? Uh, I actually think I think it's a very good point. The architecture of de-schooling is the architect that takes you to the streets. Is the architect that doesn't waste time. You know, to learning how to work around a software, but takes time to work around a city uh, public space that fights for that public space against an establishment and really regards himself as an architect. In a way, every single person that takes over a public plaza, public space, even a private space, is in his own right an architect because he's recreating the built environment around him. So the same way that... Um, there are examples in Greece that I can talk of that you know people have taken over um, like whole theaters and redefined them like whole um, public plazas and redefined them, given them to the people. So those people are in their own regards the real architects. Those are the architects, not the people are that are drawing furniture mm-hmm. and fucking doors sorry, and doors <laughs> and windows. But every single person is an architect. Every single person that takes you the street is an architect. Well, well, yeah, okay. Thank, thank you for saying that because that's that's what that's what my next point was going to be. Because you you keep talking about uh, the architect going down to the street and which, uh, which make us think that uh, there is actually someone that uh, has a certain form of legitimacy to be called uh, uh, the architect when actually it mm-hmm. might it might more be. Uh, so, okay, a social a social uh, uh, a role to play for anyone who, as you said, modifies the built environment. But there is. that That's the funny part. It's the person that decides to take to the streets. And that's a person that has a social le- legitimacy to be called the architect. Mm-hmm. He, it's not the person that hides in his bedroom you know, or in front of his TV. That's not a person that will ever become an architect in his own social structure. That's a person that's just a passive... Um, viewer of what's happening. An architect needs to be a person that really takes a struggle into what's happening in his own time and his own society. So there's like this really amazing quote I can't read it. Um, there's this really amazing quote by Raoul Vanagem where he, he, he says that the same people that are slowly murdered in the slaughterhouses of work are the same ones that are arguing, drinking, singing, dancing, holding the streets picking up the weapons and inventing their own kind of poetry. So these people are the architects of the society of tomorrow and these people are the arch- should be, we should be looking up to these people as the architects of tomorrow and the architects that we want to become. Doesn't matter how many skyscrapers you've ever built, doesn't matter how many furniture you've ever drawn. You never become an architect if you don't take your own social role um, your social charge, social responsibility and that's exactly what Ohitovich was doing when he was taking his own, um, so the own his own social transformation into his own hands, paying it with his life. But that, for me, is an architect. You have to be um, willing to take it to the extreme, to be able to fight for it, to be regarded as an architect of uh, to be regarded as an architect of your own transformation. And in the end, what the word architect means is the person that builds. It's a Greek word called architecton, and it means the master builder. Every single person of us has to be a master builder of their own life. So 
and that's it. that's why your point I think your point was really good in saying that every single person that takes you to the streets is in reality an architect I don't know if they well, should that, that was your point so <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing yeah. I don't know if they should be given like uh, degrees for that yeah. but I think they I think every single person also understands that mm-hmm. and again and there's another amazing um, point that Roland Vanagem Uh, says which says that learning is about deserting the schools and taking to the streets and that's his point from even back in the 1960s mm-hmm. so I think that's the most important point that we can we can stress today and the the social transformation even in the way that us architects understand it is that we no longer have um, we can no longer be oblivion to the social to our social responsibilities As we were comfortably used to be until until now. Um, well, what what we've been talking about in those last ten uh, minutes, at least, uh, is um, is uh, fairly abstract still. So I, I I'm kind of tempted to ask you for maybe uh, um, be beyond the kind of paradigmatic example of the the barricades that uh, I think we're we're both mm-hmm. uh, quite. Uh, fascinated by, but uh, um, maybe in a in a in in a less in a um, would would you have would you have a would you have a few examples to give right now in Europe that where where maybe there's been some architectural constructs that uh, that that could um, uh, back uh, those social movements that we can see. I mean beyond beyond their architects in those last two or three years have been have been fetishizing maybe a little bit too much uh, the, the tent of uh, of Terry Square and and uh, yeah. and Zuccotti Park and everywhere but like is there is there uh, I, I can think of a few examples myself of of, uh, of architectural con- social ar- architectural construct like that but uh, you, pr- you probably have a, a few examples yourself so so there, there are examples that are site specific especially in Greece mm-hmm. so you know people are more than willing to, to look for them. A very good example is the, um, the theater that I was talking about before. Uh, it was called the Bros. And what happened is that theater was closed for the last 20, 25 years. And it was pretty much not really closed, but it was like not really working too. So what happened was a very big part of, um, of a movement pretty much was guided towards occupying it and opening it to the people. So it new things had to happen inside of it like it had to be of course like renovated like redecorated everything so that happened not by a you know by a single architect by a but from a from a group of people that were really architects and they reconstructed everything and they opened the theater to the people and the establishment was so ruthlessly against it because it couldn't contain it that it was really uh, hardly hit by um, by police uh, with police violence and everything else. And then another good example that I think is still active in Greece today is um, in the in a borough of uh, Exarchia in, in, in Athens, in Greece. Um, there were uh, some a, a few big lots that were empty and people pretty much took over them and started planting their own stuff, you know, in the middle of Athens. And Athens is a city that has been, like, chronically problematic with green spaces, which it doesn't really have. So they took over the, the the lots and they and they planted them. They guarded them. Uh, they created green gardens in the middle of the city, and there was not a single architect that was in charge of that. That there was a group of people that were architects by creating those uh, those gardens, and by those gardens were acting as social contentious in their own behalf. 
they actually gave rise to um, movements of people that created like their own theatrical teams. They created their own um, their own gardening teams, and then they started pretty much from that spot. They started um, fleeing to other lots around you know around the area, and of course that was also met with police violence. But till this day, you know, it's holding up. People are fighting for it every single day. You know, police is trying to invade uh, those spaces that are being created. Of course, it's been considered illegal by, you know, all terms of, um, you know, civil disobedience. So those are just a few examples. And I'm sure there's more since I'm, I'm, I'm living here, but there's there's more examples of those uh, happening like every day. And mm. well, I'm, I'm also thinking since we were talking about Greece, I'm also thinking of something we've been talking about, you and me, uh, a, few, uh, a few times. And that's that's actually not necessarily well-known, I suppose, uh, abroad, but there, there was a, a piece of legislation in, uh, in Greece that uh, as a form of reward to the students uh, after, uh, to, to end the dictatorship, uh, uh, that there would be the, rights, the asylum rights given to every uh, university, right? And I think, it, if, I, if I'm correct, as a, it was ended uh, last year as a piece of legislation, but it's, it's very interesting how also... An, uh, a form of architectural practice can be enacted with within a, a, a specific legislation, I suppose. So, if if, if maybe yeah, and you you're gonna describe way more uh, in a way better uh, uh, in a much better way than I will. But if I understand correctly, it means that um, neither the police nor the military could uh, could ever enter the camp the university campuses where. Uh, students could then uh, uh, take refuge after after maybe uh, being in a demonstration and chased by the police. Or can, can you tell us more about that? Sure. So I mean, the, the the history behind this is that after the after the military coup after the 1974, uh, what happened is that um, because of the heavy toll that was paid from the um, I mean that's a short story mm-hmm. uh, from the from the student movement um, in, the, in those ages as a reward, as you said. It was given to the students. It was fought with blood, of course. It was not like given away. It was it was in a in a way as a reward um, that every university space would be considered an asylum. Um, and in Greek, the word asylum means untouched, untouchable. So it couldn't be invaded by police correctly by police or military. Only in cases that you know there were um, situations where human lives were in, uh, in danger that had never happened. Um, actually, it happened once, right? It happened three times. Three times, sorry. It happened in 1985, 1995, and then with the dissolution in 2003, um, in, in the big riots in in Thessaloniki. So, it was always always the same the same way that that had happened. It wasn't when a human really life was in danger, but when the establishment was in danger. When there was like thousands of people taking to the streets, that's when the establishment was very afraid of the asylum and then all their forces that were creating inside of it. So they were looking for a way to go against it. And you're right, the, the asylum was actually um, voted, like it was voted against, um, it was dissoluted in two years ago. Yeah. I mean, students still do not accept it. There's a lot of fighting going on still. But in reality... Um, that was, um, if you want, an architectural paradigm that was taken away from the from the people, and in the end, that actually brings us to another point that I that I would really wanna wanna make, 
the asylum is a very good example for something that could never have happened the previous years. There was hundreds of thousands of people that mainly students that took to the streets when like their civil rights or civil liberties were taken away. And that the previous years before the crisis before 2009 were going on like s- slowly but steadily. People were still losing their civil civil rights, civil rights and civil liberties, but that was happening in a in a slow rate. So after the crisis hit and Greece was decidedly like um, a foreground of the social transformation that would happen in Europe and will continue to happen even in the West in the um, in the next few years. All these uh, rates were pretty much extenuated and the civil liberties went out of the window. And the example that I that I like to give is it's like the frog in the crockpot where what, what was happening before 2009 was the fact that we were like frogs in a crockpot where we were the temperature was rising slowly but steadily so because our society was fighting but it was also kind of sleeping in the same way but it was sleeping on a you know very comfortable sleep of you know we had everything nothing was, was problematic you know everybody had money that since that was the great issue of the time and suddenly after 2009, you know, the, the temperature has risen very dramatically. So the frogs are starting to feel very discontent with the situation. They're starting to jump around. And I think that that is what we're witnessing in, in Greece today. I don't really think that we have reached a point, unfortunately, yet where this could be, you know, part of our whole revolution. I don't think, unfortunately, because, the, you know, the the powers of Europe and the powers of the market are really holding the people down in every way possible. But I'm, I'm really hoping that this will give, um, like the Occupy movement, It uh, many people have said that the Occupy movement failed, that it didn't work, but I don't really consider this. I consider that it gave rise, to, and it will give rise, to a whole generation of new thinking, and that's going to give rise to its own um, contemplations, and that in the end is going to give rise to, you know, maybe what we call a revolution to the people. So it's the same way that I read the situation in Greece today very optimistically since up until 2009 it was almost like uh, you had to be part of the um, of the out non parliamentarily left in order to be able to go to the to hit to the streets you know you would consider like an outcast a marginal part of society but now right now this thing has completely turned around where in reality, if you don't go into the streets, you're actually considered a marginal part of society. So fighting and being in the streets is actually considered the new norm, which in my, in my, in my eyes and in what we were discussing before, that is the best school for society, to hit the streets and understand what's going on in the streets. I see. Well, um, there's something I'd like to address here because uh, I'm listening to you and I, I, I feel that the way we talk about, about this is still is still um, in a sort of 19th century understanding of class struggle and uh, mm-hmm. and as, as defined by, by, by Marx and, uh, and Engels and other people. But uh, when we were talking about asylum, it also made me think of other places of asylum that we've been, we've been seeing, with, uh, whether with uh, 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 illegal immigrants in, uh, in California, for example, mm-hmm. or uh, the sans-papier in, in France. And I, I'm thinking that somehow, so far, we haven't talked really about how uh, how this struggling population really very much integrates as well uh, uh, a part of population that was not uh, really 
part of the the 19th century scheme in in this more globalized society. Uh, so, how do, how does it come uh, how does it come along with uh, with architecture? Do you think? I mean, I think it's not so much a question of architecture. I mean, obviously, you know, um, an arch- the architectural answer to that was the idea of the fortress Europe. I mean, the idea of the the formation of the Frontex units. Frontex units are uh, parts of um, combination units from armies around Europe that are pretty much have established themselves in the Greek frontiers and are hunting down, like literally hunting down illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. No, there's no illegal immigrant. Immigrants that are trying to um, come into uh, European territory. And as we saw in Italy, in Lampedusa, you know, pretty much they have no problems of sinking the boats that are the people are struggling to, to come with. So Fortress Europe can, all, can obviously be, you know, is obviously the architectural example of that. And like a year ago, it was announced that there's going to be a new um, wall, like the, the like the wall that we have in the Mexican-American borders that's going to be established in the uh, in the area of Evros in Greece uh, in an effort to pretty much even more uh, accentuate the idea of the, of the European fortress. But for me, it's not so much an example of architecture. That's a, a more of a social-political issue where I think it's very much known, unfortunately, the situation in Greece right now um, with immigration, um, because Greece is suffering from another um, disease, which is called uh, what we call the neo-Nazi disease, um, where a great percentage of people in Greece, unfortunately, that percentage reaching somewhere between 8 and 10% of the people that can vote, uh, voting for uh, literally a neo-Nazi party that doesn't have any other agenda than throwing out the, um, the, the immigrants in a very abrupt and very set up uh, moment of the system to try to disillu- to illusion the people into different channels of the problem. They're pretty much, and if you look at like modern like Greek media, 99%, especially like a few, maybe even a year ago, even six months ago, the whole problem that this, the country was facing was the immigrants. Like that was the only problem that was wrong with what was going on in Greece. Not uh, not the Troika, not uh, uh, the IMF. The only problem was the immigrants. Everybody else was doing their job and the immigrants were con- continuously polluting our, our country. So it's not, I mean, as much as I want to find, you know, an architectural um, example, and there are many, for example, they're creating... Uh, continuously um, what they're calling um, immigration detention centers mm-hmm. all over Greece uh, which are immigration deten- uh, which are centers that people are stacked like like animals into containers and there's no literally there is no legal rights for these people and the only right they have is to stay there until they are deported back to their, to their country and we are talking about a complete abandonment of the of the idea of like democratic European society, where you know every person was regarded as an equal human being, because that's already left out of the building, and people, even in, even in the, in the even in some parts of the left wing Greece, are forced to to. Uh, it's actually a very, very weird subject, but. 
But there's a lot of people that, are, um, that weren't with that type of uh, solutions, like the detention immigration centers, but because of all the propaganda that's going on, you know, the society is slowly starting to accept it. And bringing us back to the, you know, to our previous point, you know, we are becoming, along with the mass media, you know, the architects of a, of a new type of social transformation, even in that regard, where, you know, creating immigrant detention centers, which will have been, you know, unthink of, like 10 years ago, we'd, we would never think about something like that, you know, and we're now okay with it suddenly. So suddenly that's very okay with, and every, you know, immigrant should be, should be out of the country, yeah. which is unheard of. Well, a, qu a quote comes to mind, which is from uh, Chris Marker's uh, Le Joli May. So in the 60s, where he, he, was, uh, he was doing this, uh, this uh, pseudo-documentary uh, in Paris, and he, he says something uh, that I'm paraphrasing, but basically showing, showing the French-Parisian uh, proletariat and saying that there's, in, 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 this, in this context, it was always... Uh, hierarchical uh, hi hierarchy well in the hierarchy there was always uh, uh, someone below the proletariat the French proletariat as it would be the, the colonized proletariat and I think we're, we're still very much within this uh, within this way of thinking as well so I mean what, what you're saying I think makes a lot of sense in how architecture is actually more quite often an accomplice to this to the establishment of Fortress Europe. But I mean, within the name Fortress Europe, we have a very architecturally mm -hmm. uh, defined uh, word. Um, and um, and uh, so, yeah, so I, I think I think that the, the class struggle is actually much more complex now in, in the fact that it's not the proletariat against the, the, bourgeois, uh, the bourgeois order or something like that. And actually the base of those of all those right-wing, right-extreme-wing parties uh, 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 multiplying in, in Europe is actually a quite proletariat base as well. Who just uh, it's it's a it's it's a white proletariat uh, that 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 kind of uh, mis mislead its anger towards uh, towards the brown the brown proletariat, so to speak. So. Uh, so something much more complex than what the 19th century was probably about, or maybe I'm just romanticizing <laughs> the simplicity of the 19th century, but I don't know. In essence, I don't actually think that you're romanticizing. In, in essence, things are, are simple, as simple as that. Ju we just refuse to see you know, the simple truth, that our societies, in a way, have not really progressed with the, you know, how they were in the 19th century. But <coughs> you're, also <coughs> you're also right that the situation even more complex today since the proletariat was always a very defined, very um, well-established, you know, part of the population. And now pretty much proletariat could be considered everyone that's not part of the, you know, the governing body of a society. So even even though you think you are part of the middle class, uh, you're still part of the machine, you're still part of the gears that move this machine. In the end, all this machine will move against you. Everyone is disposable. Everyone um, doesn't have a guaranteed future, as you know was happening in the 19th century. So in reality, we haven't really gone forward. We have, have actually come backwards. And the way that, you know, the 
architects, you know, quote unquote architects of our future, you know, our governing bodies, you know, and the market economies having it right now is actually turning us even back to the middle ages of uh, of our um, of our social structure. So, in the end, for me, is all about people, and just to bring it full circle back to the socialist utopians, it's about people finding the the power in them. And maybe even people like, you know, Ohirovich showing up and people like him showing up and standing up for ideals that we are thinking that we have long lost today. And pretty much a society as a whole rising up and understanding its role as an, as an architect, quote unquote. Um, and with all, responsibil- all the responsibilities that come out of that. And which, which we, there's a really beautiful quote in Greek where it says... Um, being in Greek is a very important thing to be called a citizen, not not a Greek citizen, but a citizen, because a citizen in ancient Greek, in ancient Greece, was a person that had to be taking part in the common in the commons, what we call the commons. And today, a citizen is only the person that shows up a, a once every four years to vote. Mm-hmm. So the difference between being an active part of a whole and the difference between getting out of your couch and going to vote once every four years is a difference between a society full with architects, you know, for a bright new future and a society that's being driven into the ground by architects that are part of the market economy. And that is a struggle the struggle that I understand that we're having today in Europe. Where we were okay with having the back seat and now that we see, you know, the that the light in the end of the tunnel is another trend coming, we are actually suddenly realizing that we have to do something about it. But in the same way, unfortunately I'm not 100% sure if, you know, our structures and our schooling, right, is capable for us to bring us in a position to to govern our, our lives right away. For example, and for instance, what I'm saying is that things are going to get much worse before they get much better. I really think that, like the Occupy movement showed us, you know, that there are a lot of things that we need to learn and there's a lot of things that we need to experiment on before we're able to, you know, to to charge against this bright new future that we're all dreaming about. But the optimistic part of that is that every moment we spend on the street, it's a moment that we learn and a moment that we can use in order to use it, you know, to create that new social transformation that we're dreaming about. Well, I like, I like finishing with the, the notion of learning and, uh, and in, in balance with the notion of unlearning that we've been talking about as well, because, uh, the last the last podcast was also talking a lot about uh, Occupy Wall Street with uh, uh, Pamela Brown, and, and she was talking about how uh, Occupy Wall Street also failed in in uh, not reproducing their their the mechanisms of of, of uh, white supremacy within within it. So I think uh, we we also finished a conversation saying that we really need to learn from our mistakes for, for this kind of things, but. Uh, thank you very much, Nicolas, to have even managed to to synthesize and conclude this conversation. And uh, I, I hope that uh, non-architects, potential, potentially architects, will, will have enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Nicolas. Thank you very much.